This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Swarthmore professor Barry Schwartz says rules and incentives are an insurance policy against disaster, but they don't produce excellence. In his recent book, Practical Wisdom, The Right Way to Do the Right Thing, Schwartz and co-author Kenneth Sharp, also a Swarthmore professor, say that what is needed is not more bureaucracy. Instead, society needs the Aristotelian ideal that trumps all others, practical wisdom. Knowledge at Wharton recently sat down with Schwartz to discuss why individuals fail to do the right thing, what practical wisdom looks like in practice, and what organizations can do to regain people's trust. Barry, thank you very much for speaking with Knowledge at Wharton today. My pleasure. You study the link between economics and psychology and have more recently been focusing on wisdom with Ken Sharp, uh, your co-author on Practical Wisdom. The issues you are writing about have really resonated. Your TED Talks have been watched for by um, nearly five million people. Astonishing, isn't it? it it's amazing. It's <laughs> amazing. You know that there is a collective sense of dissatisfaction with and mistrust of the institutions and people that surround us. Why is that, and how are we responding? So I don't want to be sort of monomaniacal about this. Uh, I think that there are probably many reasons, not one, for this distrust of institutions. But the one that Ken and I focused on in writing this book uh, about wisdom is that we have, we, have, we have come to the view as a society that when things are broken, the way to fix them is either by making more rules um, or by creating smart incentives so that people will do the right thing because it's in their own self-interest to do the right thing. And if you make a lot of rules and you got somebody standing over people's heads watching them to make sure that they actually obey the rules, then it doesn't, you don't care what people's motivation is. You have to follow the rules or, you, or you're out. So anytime something is broken, schools don't work, rigid curriculum, scripts for teachers to follow, and then bonuses if your kids do well and stuff like that. In, in, in domain after domain, if the financial system is broken, change the incentive structure so that bankers stop uh, ripping off their clients. Uh, and the point of our book is that you will never get what you need and want out of any institution that matters by relying on rules and incentives. Rules and incentives are the booby prize. Uh, if you can't count on anything else, then you impose rules and incentives. But you'll never get what you want. You'll just it's a kind of insurance policy against disaster, but it doesn't produce excellence. You need people of good character who want to do the right thing because it's the right thing, who know, who know how to figure out what the right thing is in this particular situation with this particular person and are willing to improvise, uh, take the initiative, risk being wrong, and all in the service of actually serving the mission of whatever activity they're in. Teachers who want their kids to learn and be excited about learning, doctors who want their patients to be healthy, lawyers who want their clients' interests to be well served, and so on, and don't need to be goaded either by rules or by incentives into achieving that. So we think that what we are doing as a society instead is um, a very, very pale substitute for what's needed, but you never hear, you don't hear anyone talking about the importance of character to 
the making of good teachers, good doctors, good bankers, and uh, pretty much good, good uh, politicians, or, or pretty much anything else. That's right, and you say that practical wisdom is, uh, is a better path. Can you tell us uh, the source of that idea and, and what you mean by that? Well, the source of the idea, embarrassingly enough, is Aristotle. Aristotle, uh, who was famous uh, for being what's called a virtue theorist, that is, the way you create good societies is by creating good people, and the way you create good people is by instilling in them the virtues. And he had his own list of what the virtues are, and our list would be different from his. But the point is he thought that good societies depend on people of good character, and good character is something that can be trained. So he had a big list of virtues, but he thought there was one particular virtue that was the master, and that one he called practical wisdom. And the reason was courage is a virtue, but you can be too courageous. And then we don't call it courage anymore, we call it recklessness. So what's the right amount of courage? That requires wisdom. Honesty is a virtue, but so is kindness. Often you find yourself having to decide whether this is a situation that calls for honesty or one that calls for kindness. What enables you to figure that out? Wisdom is what enables you to figure that out. And so for him, uh, one, one, the way one scholar put it is that these virtues are running, running around like unruly school children and wisdom is what creates order out of this chaos uh, and actually helps people to find what he called the mean, the right amount appropriate for this person and this situation. So all we did in the book was try to take Aristotle's ideas and translate them into a language that makes sense in the 21st century and apply them to the kinds of institutions and problems that we face in modern developed societies uh, as opposed to ancient Athens. Mm -hmm. And the thing that you do so well is you really describe um, people who are, are living that and um, uh, illustrating that through their lives. And the person who I think a lot about is Luke, yes. um, the janitor. And I'm, Hell of a story, I, I, I would love to hear you talk a little bit about that and really what the takeaways are. I, I can't tell you how surprised I was um, by the by the choice that he made in that moment, and it startled me that I was surprised by it. <laughs> so, so this is this is work that was actually done by uh, um, a psychologist named Amy Rizniewski, who is visiting Wharton this very year. But she's on the faculty at at, uh, at Yale and was an undergraduate here at Penn, and she started doing this work as an undergraduate at Penn. She was interested in how people craft their jobs, and especially people who do what is called dirty work, the, the people who are invisible, the people we don't notice. So she did a big study of hospital janitors, hospital custodians at a major academic teaching uh, academic hospital. And you know, for, for a lot of them, there was a long list of job duties, I don't know, 30 different things that you had to do as a janitor. But when she started interviewing janitors, she found there were some who thought their job was just doing these 30 things, emptying trash, restocking shelves, washing floors, and so on. But there was a non-trivial number who thought their job was doing whatever was necessary to provide aid and comfort to the professional staff, to the patients and to the patients' families. So the example of Luke involved uh, a, a young man who was in a coma, apparently the result of a fight in which he got the tar beaten out of him. Uh, and 
this Luke, this young boy's father w- was keeping a vigil all day, every day, except that he would go out and smoke a cigarette now and then. So Luke cleaned the kid's room and uh, washed the floor, but the dad was out smoking and didn't see it. And so when the dad came up, he said, he, he angrily accused Luke of not cleaning the boy's room. You know, the boy's in a coma, how the boy wouldn't know. So he was taking advantage. And it should also be said that Luke is African-American. The boy had gotten beaten, beaten up by African-Americans. And so you could imagine a certain antagonism on the part of the dad toward a black person who was responsible for his sons getting beaten up. So Luke was angry, but he immediately suppressed the anger. And he said, oh, okay, I'll take care of it. And he went and he cleaned the room again. He cleaned it so that the boy's father could see him clean it. And he said in the interview that he understood that, you know, he should have been angry, he could have been angry, but he finally decided, you know, I, I can understand what this man is going through. Why not do something so he can see that he's actually having an effect uh, on the, uh, that contributes to the welfare of his son? So he cleaned the room again. And it, it's really a, it's an incredibly touching story because one doesn't expect that kind of judgment and humanity from people who are basically invisible. These are the people nobody notices without whom the institutions wouldn't function. Uh, And the reason Luke was able to do that, and he has, you know, uh, colleagues who behave similarly, is that they weren't being so closely supervised. So they could do their job, the 30 things on their list, and still have time to do what they thought was their real job, which was to provide comfort and care to patients and their families. Imagine the hospital um, having financial difficulties and having to crack down and, you know, lay off staff. So now there are, you know, one-third fewer janitors than there used to be. Well, all of a sudden you have more responsibilities and you have to be working faster and harder and you don't have time. You got somebody breathing down your neck and you don't have time to do what you think is your real job because there are just too many rooms to get clean and too many trash cans to uh, empty. So Luke was blessed to be working in a time and in an environment in which his supervisors left him alone. So he could do both the job that was officially defined as his job and the job as he had crafted it and get enormous satisfaction out of it. And when you asked him, and people like him, how, how, how hard is it to learn to do this job? They would say it takes a lot of experience to do this job. It doesn't take a lot of experience to wash floors and empty trash cans. It takes a lot of experience to know how to intervene with patients and their families in a way that actually is comforting and helpful. You know, you don't want to be a loose cannon, and initially you probably are. Your well-intentioned efforts to make people feel better don't work. But over time, you learn when to intervene, how to intervene, and how, what small things you can do that make a big difference. There's another nurse, I think we mentioned her in the book, who uh, there was somebody who'd been in the hospital for months and months and months, and she, not, did I say nurse, janitor, who just took it upon herself to change the pictures on the wall in this patient's room. Who notices what pictures are on the wall in the hospital room? But she figured that maybe it would be it would, it would inspire this person to get a sense that there was actually progress being made, that things were changing if the environment wasn't exactly the same hour after hour and day after day. So I don't know, every couple of weeks, she'd take pictures from another room and put them in this room. Uh, this is not obviously part of her job description. 
So it's, I think people really do come up short when they hear this because they don't, they don't expect it. They deeply admire it when they hear about it. And they, what I hope is they ask themselves, well, how can I do something like that in my work? Right. I don't know if they do ask themselves that question, but it would be nice if they did. There, um, that's you know one very interesting or a couple of very interesting examples of one way of sort of um, acting um, in an ethical way, um, using the wisdom that you talk about um, on a, a very uh, personal level, you know. Um, but what about the cases where the stakes are much higher, such as in the case of those that surrounded Penn State's um, Jerry Sandusky? Many people have uh, been charged with keeping his crimes a secret. You know, what can businesses do to help their employees do the right thing in cases like that? Well, I think that's a huge challenge. I, I, I'm much better at saying what won't do the job than I am at saying what will. Well, let's will. start there. <laughs> what won't do the job is giving lectures to people about, about business ethics or organizational ethics. There's no surer way to marginalize ethics than to have a separate course in it. Because what people learn is that ethics is something that you learn in a separate course and uh, write exam answers to, and you try as hard as you can to make sure that it is completely insulated from your actual day-to-day -day activities on the job. So I think that you need to exemplify the behavior that you want the people working uh, with you and under you to display. You need to be a model of what it means to be an ethical organization, and uh, you need to be doing it all day, every day. Uh, and there are very, very few organizations that I'm aware of that, that behave like that. There is a um, charter school movement that's become national called KIPP, Knowledge is Power, They've had incredible uh, uh, results with inner-city kids. Um, there are a couple of KIPP schools actually in Philadelphia. And what, and what the, the founders of KIPP realized, though they didn't quite say it in that way at the time, is that the most important thing that kids need to learn is character. If you can teach them character, respect for knowledge, respect for the educational process, respect for the teacher, respect for one another. If you can teach them that, then teaching them how to add and subtract is trivial. And if you can't teach them that, then teaching them how to add and subtract is impossible. So then the question is, how do you teach them that? And the answer is, you teach them that by showing it to them every minute of every day. So that's what KIPP teachers do. They are on stage, they are always teaching and they know that they're always teaching. It's incredibly demanding on them, and I think it's the secret sauce that produces these extraordinary results. That's what people who run organizations need to do. Right, so it's, it's not um, the, the rule or the policy or the incentive to act in a certain way. It's really over time starting to foster certain ideals and behaviors um, by uh, through the act of mentors or teachers or even um, uh, ways of doing things within an organization. Is yes, right? you need the power of good examples. You need to show people that you really do value ethical conduct uh, rather than just talking the talk and, uh, and, and then ignoring unethical behavior. I think the reason, one reason why the, why the bank catastrophes happened is that you, know, you have these CEOs of major banks who have become public figures. 
And they go off and give speeches about the bank's ethical commitments and commitments to rebuilding the city and the neighborhood and this, that, and the other thing. And they know that two levels down in the hierarchy, there is a manager whose job depends on the people he supervises making their margins. They don't have to know how that manager gets that to happen. All they need to know is that the manager does get it to happen, and if he doesn't, out he goes. So there's this, it's not just plausible deniability, it's just like complete indifference to what it takes to produce the results that you're insisting that the people who work for you produce. And meanwhile, you're giving this com these completely sincere speeches about what an ethical, uh, uh, community-minded company you are, uh, and that, that are in practice um, uh, betrayed basically every minute of every day by the people who work under you. Um, so as long as that kind of dynamic exists, you can forget about ethical um, uh, speeches from corporate leaders because it will never actually have an impact on the way the people who are making the day-to-day -day decisions in the company operate. And I guess there's a question here about how institutions can regain our trust. Um, you know, to circle back to the sort of the first part of what we were discussing, is that possible? It's not easy. I think we, you know, you have to, you have to do it again. There's the power of the good example. You do it by doing the right thing in uh, in conspicuous ways. Uh, and slowly, bit by bit, episode by episode, you, re you win back the trust of the community that depends on you. Um, you can't, there's nothing you can tell people that will or should earn uh, their trust. You have to demonstrate it in the way you behave, which means you have to be in it for the long haul and be patient. Uh, uh, and we you know, sort of win one victory at a time. Um, and with respect to some institutions, it, I'm, you know, I can't, it's hard to be optimistic. I don't see how um, what, what uh, public educational institutions can do to regain the trust of the families who are, have not been well served by them. Um, I don't know what financial institutions can do to regain the trust of people who have not been well served by them. As far as I'm concerned, the, rati the, uh, the ratings agencies should all be you know, everybody in the ratings agencies should simply be thrown in jail and the keys to the jail thrown away. They, they so betrayed the public trust in their giving uh, AAA ratings to every piece of crap under the sun. Uh, it'll take a generation. If people are paying attention, it'll take a generation to regain the trust that got lost in the space of, a, you know, six months. And the adoption of a lot more practical wisdom. Thank you very much for talking with Knowledge at Wharton today. <laughs> Thank you. Nice talking to you. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.